0: Hey, Vince McMahon,
1: it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother.
0: Here I am in the Stick to Wrestling podcast. we going to rock you like a hurricane. I want to thank the Scorpions for writing that song about their favorite podcast. Stick to Wrestling, we're recording here on Sunday the August 22nd, and we had a hurricane forecast here in New Hampshire. And thankfully we didn't have one of those. So anyway, this is stick to wrestling. I'm John McAdam. Give us 60 minutes and perhaps indeed we'll give you a wicked good and a raw bone podcast before we get rolling. I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the words stick to wrestling and join the group. It's fun. Uh, we talk wrestling, we give answer questions, we talk about the show, etc. Also, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, just type in the search John McAdam and follow the guy who has Don Morocco and Moondog Maine fighting with chairs. I'm serious when I say this, I'm almost up to a thousand followers, which is nothing compared to some other people. But if I get to a thousand, I'd be a very happy person, so... Give it a try. Before we get rolling, I want to urge everyone to please get vaccinated. If I can get one person who is on the fence to get vaccinated, I will have have, I will consider myself a success in life. I was fully vaxxed May 14th, and I feel so much better. I have to worry about getting covid with that. Let me bring on a returning popular co-host, Christian, the Ventura body. Christian, thanks for coming on.
1: What to do, guys? Hello to the brotherhood. Hope everyone's healthy. It's been a trying eighteen months for everyone, and I hope everyone's safe. I hope your families are all good as well. So, also special uh, shout out to Mark Rowland. We know he, his father passed recently. We want to send our condolences along to him, and uh, we're thinking of you. If you need anything, just reach out to us in the group. We we got you back, no matter what happens.
0: I echo that sentiment, Mark. We're all in your corner, and you know we we're. we're... Behind your family, I mean, I know this is, I've been through it. It is a tough time. You, you do a lot of growing up as soon as you lose your dad.
1: Sorry, I, sorry if I put that in there, but I just thought about Mark because it really hit us hard that he lost his parents. And, and a lot of people I know have lost parents in the last year. And it's just a matter of, um, like God said, like someone said, God only gives you one. So you got to look out for them and take care of them. And really just hope this past 18 months showing that we really need to look out for each other and do right by each other. It's not hard to do, guys. So No, it God is not. Say, Get vaxxed, get, take care of each other so we can all hang out with Brandon Rice and Vegas in a year. <laughs> have a good time. Absolutely. Can to, or if you can come to New York and we'll have some fun around there as well. So
0: you're all,
1: <laughs> as, long as, I, as long as I have a roof, you guys will always have a home. You know, you, Everyone <laughs> the brother
0: that has that. Christian, you are the man. Thank you very much. And you have been circled, sir, for this episode because uh, you have brought up that this is the 35th anniversary of, of what both you and I consider the greatest summer of wrestling history, 1986. So much happened. uh, So much was going on and we're going to break it down. First thing, let's talk about the beginning of the summer. Arn Anderson is getting on TV and he's talking about the horseman and Mm -hmm. Ole Anderson's coming back. And at the time, I don't even remember it. I don't. I, I, whenever I watch old episodes of worldwide or, the six oh five show. I see Arn talking about this, and it just never resonated with me at the time. But Oli Anderson, if they, if it, if it had like you know gotten through my head that Ole Anderson was coming back, like I wouldn't have been impressed. And when it happened, I wasn't exactly blown away. But the net effect was the Four Horsemen were born, and wrestling was going to be changed forever.
1: Yeah, it was weird because people forget beginning of that year, only got hurt New Year's night at the Omni. And the Road Wars took him out, and then six months later, they announce that comes back. And I, I mean, the interview itself was very – it was weird because you look at it, they edit it out when Ole – the one thing about Ole is he's like the great—he's like Johnny Valentine. When Johnny Valentine once said, I can't convince you wrestling is real, but I can convince you I'm real. And Ole was the type of guy that would give a promo that could scare you. Like, I'm dead serious. When he says Rhodes, this is – the promo when he comes back, he announces Rhodes, well, this is not going to end, and they have to edit this out, and so one of us is dead and buried. And it's yep. like – and I remember saying that, thinking, is that really something you need to edit out? But I guess maybe they're thinking of children or whatever, but it just showed how serious it was. And he's, and he's holding Ricky Morton's face mask when he says, hey, we got a nose on the end of this one. Rhodes, we take care of you. And that other guy, Magnum, I mean, Oli was like, when people always talk about the reason they like the original unit the best, I almost think it's because Oli was the one that gave him the kind of like serious, Oli and I gave him a serious, like a you know, hard image of, this is not about four guys chasing women. It's about four guys that are dedicated to wrestling. Winning at all costs, you know, just win does not matter. If we have to hurt you to make a point, we'll do it. And I mean really I don't think any unit of that of that you know, the Luger unit was more of a cosmetic look where they all, you know, kind of fit the it was kind of what, you know, it was cosmetically appealing. The Wyndham unit was really the best in sort of just in the ring or equal to only. I mean, let's be really he was it was superior because Wyndham is one of the five best in the world at that point. But the original unit was the one that was really just hardcore about we're gonna whip you behind. And there's nothing you can do about it. And you can take this butt whipping, and you can take this ass whipping any way you want to take it. But you're gonna get it. And really, that kind of launched. The Horsemen were born. They again, they they didn't really get the following until maybe the following year. But I think the the smart fans caught on. And then it was like, okay, you know, in '87, when I I've kind of thought about this, the, the the kind of the beginning of what I call the antihero was born. Where like we think about '87, the movie Wall Street comes out. Gordon Gecko becomes kind of popular as, like, you know, Greed Works. That's when you sort of see heels getting more of a vo- of a vocal fan spot, like, you know, the Horseman, Randy Savage, although Randy Savage prior to that had that, you know, Flair had his, his pocket of fans, and that's really when people began to think, you know what, I'm going to appreciate the excellence, I suppose, is who they're just beating up. And the Horsemen sort of kicked that off, and that summer really began their reign of, you know, terror, greatness, whatever you want to call it, but it really started with them.
0: I, I think it might have started nationally with the WWF and Roddy Piper. I mean, Roddy you, you was me a rebel. He had his faction of fans for sure.
1: Right, he did. I mean, that that was weird because you brought up a good point. Hot Rod shirts were very popular in 85. And I remember kids wearing them like they liked Roddy because it was like, you know, Hogan's like the do-gooder, you know, he, I'm doing this for the kids. Roddy's like, you know what, I'm just doing this because I want to do it. He, he was almost like Heath Ledger's character in The Dark Knight, the Joker, when he's just like, I'm just about chaos. And I'm here to just do what I need to do. But and it looks like Roddy didn't want to win a title. He just wanted to beat up. He wanted to, like, act crazy, which gave him a certain appeal that you don't, that you didn't really see in wrestling at that point.
0: Yeah, and getting back to Ole Anderson, I mean, I am less charmed by Ole than some people are, which is not to say that I didn't appreciate his career because I did. Ole did one of the greatest wrestling promos ever, maybe even the best wrestling promo after he and Arn split, he was talking about how he was watching film and he was, like, teaching Arn Anderson to wrestle in a cage match and only said, I told Arn, you take that guy by the back of his head you grind his head against that, grind his face against that cage. And he said, and Arn kind of turned green, and he said, I don't know if I could watch something like that. And only mm-hmm. looks at the camera and he says, Arn, this time you're not going to be watching it. And I thought that was phenomenal. <laughs>
1: That whole that whole turn had some great promos in it. When one of the best ones I think I ever saw was when Oli when when that when Oli turned and Arn gave the speech about what about me Oli I'm family don't I count I mean don't I don't you know and he talked about one ill fated night Start, yeah. my yeah. shot at immortality don't I, I I'm family too Oli and, I mean the, when you have promos that are that dramatic that works as opposed to you know I, I think the great ones cut the we we were kind of the great ones kind of walk that thin line between reality and, and actually hitting a, a, an emotional nerve with the audience, and Ole could do that. But I think Ole's biggest problem was, much like other people in that year in 86, the business was changing, and he wasn't going to be part of that future. And he was good. It, it kind of It's kind of ironic that Ole's the one cog out of the horseman unit that was always replaced. Ole's replaced by Luger. Luger's replaced by Wyndham. It's almost like as long as you have the three constants, Flair, Windham, Flair Barry, and Flair, Tully, and Arn, you're fine we can find somebody else to kind of cosmetic that fits what we do. Uh, they found the perfect fit in Wyndham and unfortunately that didn't last too long, but I think I think the other versions work. I think the Luger version worked for a little bit in terms of getting them more mass appeal, but I think the Oli version works too from the sense of it just shows how ruthless they were. I mean, because you think about it, they go from beating people up to, you know, jumping dusty in the parking lot, all this other stuff that goes on. It's just like, it just, again, it works. And I think it, it got over, but Again, maybe Oli was tired. Just maybe Oli wasn't much longer for the business than what he was. So that's unfortunate in that regard.
0: Well, no, I mean, it, it, it comes to an end for everyone. And I think especially like 1990, Oli was hanging on a little bit too long. Yeah. You know, it sounds I make it sound like I'm not a fan of Oli Anderson. And I, I was. I absolutely was. I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. Just, you know, when he does shoot interviews, he's, oh, everything's shit. Like, I don't get turned on by it just the way other people do. <laughs>
1: I know. I can always look at Ole and be objective about it, but I'm a fan of him. Like you said, his promo when he turned on Dusty and 80 was great. His, his promos are very serious, but I just think that from what Dusty was trying to accomplish in competing with Vince, Ole wasn't going to be part of that. But when he came back and initially launched a real serious unit that really, and Dusty always made his heels strong, and he had the four strongs in the business at that time. And, I mean, Ole kind of came back in and really, it was kind of weird to look at in that he was, you know, he was always threatening in his interviews and always talking about what they were going to do and things like that, whereas the other guy was talking about, we're champions, we're great, do what we do. So that's kind of, I think, where, you know, it was it was a situation where you, Oli was trying to be something that business wasn't going to be anymore, and that's kind of unfortunate. But, you know, they did get a, a great run out of him, but unfortunately, you know, it's it's, there's only so much you can do with with him in the ring at that point because he was, like you said, he was near the end, but he was still great at what he did for what he, for what he was asked to do at that point.
0: And it was good to see the Andersons' tag team return. Um, they had been around for the second half of 1985, and as you mentioned, he got hurt on uh, New Year's Night in 1986 in the Omni, and his his comeback was dramatic, and it it really meant something. It meant the beginning of the Horsemen. Now, mm-hmm. 1986, they have the Great American Bash tour which was moderately successful. I know it was disappointing. The wrestlers came out, came into it thinking that they were going to get rich. They were all going to have new homes, (laughs) new sports cars. and It it didn't quite work out that way, Um, but they did an interesting thing where Ric Flair was going to defend the NWA championship against 13 different opponents. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I want to get your perspective of that on this Christian 13 different opponents in 30 days. What were your thoughts on that in 1986?
1: It was great. Um, I was actually at the first bash in Philadelphia um, at the Veterans Stadium, and that's always been a source of controversy for a lot of the guys because Jim Cornette in the Midnight Express book, he says, well, there's only 10,000. The promoter put 10,000. That's not possible because the bottom basin of the vet, I know you've been there, John.
0: Oh, yeah. I was there, at was
1: the was a, there was at least 5,000 on the floor. So if he says 10,000, that guy either can't count or he was pocketing money. But you know the thought of Flair. It, Flair. Oh, I think that what they were trying to do was show that Flair's is the most versatile champion of all time. I mean, it was both Road Warriors, Rock and Roll Express, Magnum, Nikita, Dusty. I think Dusty got three shots, or it might have been three, three times around the bend. You got um Wahoo. You know, Ronnie Garvin. It was interesting because Flair had built his reputation on wrestling anybody all over the country. So what they were trying to do was instead of just give him one steady of a bit of an opponent he got 13 different challengers, And there were some great matches out of him. Unfortunately, we didn't see that many of them. We've seen the Hawk and we've seen the Ricky Morton matches. I would have liked to have seen the Nikita match to see how Nikita had grown from 85 to 86, but you got Wahoo and Magnum, um, Robert Gibson. Um, you know, it was interesting because if you compare that to 87, he didn't really have the greatest level of opponents then. Whereas in 86, he had a lot. So it was, it was interesting to look at. I mean, it was almost like trying to, say this is the ultimate challenge for him. And, Again, it was their way of trying to say, our champion will take on anyone, as opposed to certain other ones that only wrestle once a month. So, I mean, they always made a point to make Flair look strong, you know, defending it. But to me, Dusty getting three shots at it was kind of, they, they'd they gone around the horn with Dusty the entire year, and him winning it in inevitably in Greensboro. I think someone, a joke was, you know, the law of averages beat Flair, not Dusty, but it, that's wow. just the way it goes. <laughs> I, that's the truth. If he wrestles one enough, that's it. But I mean, Dusty, I think got he got Greensboro, and then a week later, I know he did one in Florida. He did one, in, he obviously won it in Greensboro, and then he had the big show in Atlanta, which my cousin was at. I'm actually asked. He actually he saw some photos of that that night, so he's going to try to send them to me. I'll see if I can upload them if he ever gets them to me. Because He has great. a lot of he has a lot of pictures from shows in the Omni and things like that because that's one of the benefits of having family down south. You can actually go. I, I've actually been my first wrestling show I actually as a kid was at the Omni, so. That that place always sentimentally means a lot to me. But you know, the bash, it, Dusty tried a lot. I mean, there were so many things going on during that month. You know, the the the, the baby doll six man's with the rock and roll, the road warriors against Cornet and the Express. You know, the the tape fist matches with Ronnie Garvin and Tully Blanchard, which were really great. I mean, they were just they were just they were just brutal to look at. And then you had you know the the title defenses. I mean, they, Dusty, you know. Being critical of him, but I mean, like someone said, Dusty would spend 100 dollars to make fifty, and you know, putting stadium events in there when the overhead and the cost of that would have been just as served putting him in an arena. But it, you know, Dusty thought big, but ultimately, it was a problem. Ultimately, I don't think it cost the company money, but they it, it would have been better sort of scaling things back and just doing things on a smaller level. But the the cards were good, and if you actually read the, the you know the list of the cards they have, there's a there's a website that has them. They did a lot, but it just, um, you know, it was too much. I think it was too much to try for a company that just had gone national the prior year. But they, it did do well, and they ultimately made, um, they made themselves um, a viable, a viable amount of cash, but not as much as I think they thought.
0: I mean, well, a few things. Um, I mean, as someone who did not have access to any real information in 1986. I mean, the Philadelphia show did well. It, it wasn't sold out, but there were a lot of people there. I mean, I mm-hmm. I can personally testify. I mean, number two, you know, as someone who, who didn't have access, once again, to real information, I just figured the shows in Cincinnati and Memphis and wherever did well. So it, I think to the common viewer... It looked good. Wow, they're having these shows at these stadiums, and, you know, right. obviously they must be doing well, otherwise they wouldn't be there. That turned out not to be
1: the case, but... um, Right. I heard Cincinnati, I heard Memphis was really bad. Like Memphis you know, like, was
0: really bad.
1: I heard there was, they said it was a rainstorm, and it just killed it, and I just thought, you know, I mean, Charlotte drew, because obviously North Carolina was their biggest drawing biggest drawing place, but, you know, they for the events that they labeled bash events, I think I, Norfolk and them did well, but you know, doing stadiums, I mean, Philadelphia at that point had been a hot city for them, but I just, you know, the idea of doing a stadium show, it's risky from the overhead standpoint. I'll say it again, from a business standpoint, I always look at things, what is it going to cost and what are we going to make? And, you know, I can't criticize someone for taking a gamble, but ultimately, they probably could have done just done better just doing arena shows and and, and making out that way. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but I still wouldn't have done that large scale of an event in cities that, you know, are you really that strong in? And that's kind of that's kind of the question I would ask or the statement I would make to that. Well,
0: I'm, I'm looking at it from my own perspective. I know they had NWA shows in Philadelphia prior to mm-hmm. the Great American Bash, but it was the Great American Bash that I took the trip from New Hampshire to Philadelphia for because it, they made it sound like such a big deal. Christian, you mentioned that like um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I can be critical of Dusty. Everyone has a, a peak and this was Dusty's peak 85 right. and in right around here in 86, the NWA was flying high and we all had Dusty to thank for that by all bookers have a, have a shelf life. And by the, certainly by the end of 87, it looked like Dusty was just, he was out of ideas. He needed a break and Crockett just didn't give him one. But the other thing I wanted to say, I don't know how you looked at it. I've talked about this on the show. As someone who you know didn't get newsletters or anything in 1986, when I heard that okay Flair is defending the championship against 13 different challengers, I'm like he's got to lose the belt. There's no way he right. can beat the entire promotion. And Dusty wound up as champion. I mean, did you figure the same thing that he was going to lose the title?
1: Yeah, I just wondered when it was going to be. It, it was. I, I, we've had this discussion in the group before. I've said had they Dusty done the drop at 85. At Stark '85, that would have been the best wrestling event of the decade. That's what I believe, and I think of, to me, you had to have, like I said, the law of averages. He wrestled him so many times; it was inevitably going to happen. It was just a matter of Dusty can't be the face of something because he just doesn't. Dusty built his mindset as my heels are my on my on my asset. So Dusty Dusty's a champion. Who would he have wrestled? It, it would have been interesting had he gone, basically he ended up like almost wrestling Tully. Like if you do Tully Arn Rick. Who else are you going to do? You don't really, there's not really a a lot, maybe Nikita, but that's about it. Ultimately, you know, him winning the championship and losing it two weeks later, to me, it was kind of funny. We all remember that Pro Wrestling Illustrated cover where they have Dusty Rhodes with the belt on, and it's, uh, it's a month after the the event. And he's, we've already moved on. Flair's got it back, so it's like you know, the cover's outdated and things like that. But I don't know if Dusty could ever been could have been a long term champion. I think he knew. I'm just a play. I'm not. Even, I don't know if placeholder is sort of the right word. I'm just gonna have Flair lose it. So I can say uh, he he dropped it and and that and that's that. But to me, it's it was just something where wh- who else are you going to give it to? Could you have done Magnum? Maybe could you have done Ronnie? Gar- well, they did Ronnie Garvin a year later, and we saw how well that went. So honestly, at that point in time, Dusty was the one who could have done it. But it it needed to be I think maybe a longer run than just two weeks, and th- it just didn't make much sense to me.
0: No, I completely agree with you. I mean, it was almost like Flair. They set it up so Flair had to lose the title. I remember getting the news that Dusty Rhodes won the NWA championship. I think I got the news on Worldwide Wrestling like late uh, Saturday night. And, right. you know, my friends and I are discussing, okay, well, what happens next? And, you know, you, you could have the, the Flair rematches, but Dusty and Flair had kind of been done to death by that. I thought they had a dream program set up with new United States champion Nikita Koloff coming off the hot series against Magnum, mm-hmm. challenging Dusty Rhodes for the NWA championship. And that was a I mean Dusty and Nikita had really never gone at it before in a a singles feud. And you know, we were talking about okay, well, Dusty versus Arn, Dusty versus Tully, the rematches versus Flair, and then they can build new heels after this Nikita feud. Like I was I was really surprised when Dusty, you know, that he only had a two or three weak run with the championship. And at the time, believe it or not, I was a little bit disappointed. Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler of all time, but he had been NWA champion for five years. years. I was ready
1: point. for something else. I think with the, what would the quality of match has been with Dusty and Nikita, to be honest, because the thing about Dusty is that look who he wrestles Tully can make him look good. Flair can make him look good. Arn can make him look good with Nikita at that point. It's like, you know, it's almost like when Luger came in and went against Nikita, we forgot that it was like, those matches initially were kind of like, yeah, this is not looking, you know, they're not, neither one is able to carry a high quality match. But Dusty would have been like five minutes of stalling, you know, and he was just brutalizing him and things like that. So it's it's no no disrespect to Dusty. It's just a matter of could you have done something where maybe Magnum, I I'm trying to think of the best, way, the, the best options I could have had at that point. Because you, if Magnum doesn't get the U.S. title back, or maybe just have somewhere, have, you guys give me a thought, have Magnum in the title, and then have Magnum in the key to go at it. Does that work? I don't know. Because at that point, Flair is, the, is still the biggest asset in the company. So it's, it's kind of you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. We could spitball and come up with our own ideas, but it's just a matter of what would have worked for the company at the time. Having Flair on top works. I mean, could you have had a, a situation where even Magnum doesn't have the accident, where you turn the key to the face and have him and Rick go at each other? Maybe. I don't know. That, that maybe could have happened one way or the other. You see, at the time, I, I
0: didn't know what work rate was. I knew, like, if I saw an exceptionally bad or an exceptionally great match, like, right. I knew I had just seen one. But, like, I wouldn't have been concerned about the quality of Dusty versus Nikita at that time. As As, as time went on, I would, I would right. soon learn about that. But
1: To <laughs> me, it would have been like, oh, Dusty and Nikita, this is going to be great. And you get in the ring, it's just like, okay, uh, next that's kind of yeah. the way I would have been like, yeah, okay, we, yeah, we've done that. We're, we're not doing that again. But the thing was, I brought this up. I think Chris Tabor and I had a conversation where what would happen if, say, Nikita, they talked about what was going to happen in Stargate. Well, Nikita has the I quit match. They said, Ivan throws in the towel and, you know, quits for Nikita. Well, Nikita becomes a face and teams up with them. I said, well, fine, turn Magnum heel because he's somewhat jealous of Nikita's success. I said, people thought that was kind of crazy for me to say I but said, look, at some point, everyone has to work both sides of the fence. So I don't know what would have happened, but there was enough going on during that summer to where things could have been handled a little bit differently. But hindsight, the only, they didn't really make a lot of mistakes, I would say. But, you know, with two weeks with Dusty, again, it goes back to my point. Have him win the Star 85 hold it for a month, you know, and you set up the following year where Flair gets it back and Dusty's chasing again. But it almost seems like Dusty knew that I just don't have the stamina to book and be the champion at the same time, and that's a, and that's a fair point.
0: And that that actually is is a good point. I mean, I, I think Magnum inevitably would have been turned. Maybe not in uh, certainly not in 1986. Maybe not even in 87. But you're right. Everyone eventually works both sides of the street, especially if you're Dusty's sidekick. You're going to get turned eventually. Right. The the Jimmy Valiant versus Paul Jones feud is entering <laughs> its
1: third a per, year. A, per, a personal favorite. <laughs> what I call the, what I what I call the what I always call a filler feud. It's like it's not midnight rock and roll. It's not you know like Magnum Tully like uh, Tully um Ronnie Garvin's a filler feud. It's violent. It's going to serve its purpose. It was almost kind of funny when this was going on because if we actually look at the um I remember we did the group watch of the Greensboro show yep. about a year or so ago. I was going to tell you if you look closely when he's shaving his head, there's a girl in the background crying and screaming, "No, Jimmy, no!" <laughs> you can literally see it when Stacey Scott is shaving his head. And I just was like, it was almost kind of, the one thing I always said is that, now look at this and look at what they did at WrestleMania 3 when they barely cut Adrian Doss's head. This is how you shave a head, gentlemen. Okay? <laughs> you know, Pez Watley lost his head never got it back, by the way. Stay bald. <laughs> and, um, Gary Hart Jimmy, award. Gary Hart, yeah, the Gary Hart bald for, I'm like, I'm like, how are you going to tell a guy to stay bald for life, by the way? That's always been something like, what are you going to do? Follow him to the barbershop or whatever? But it's just a situation where, <laughs> Jimmy Valiant and Paul Jones. People always thought it was a silly few, but I just thought it served its purpose, you know, and I and I liked it. But it's just it'd be going on for three years, and they and they and they finally culminated in Starcade, where Paul Jones finally got his revenge. I mean, we can still hear them chant as a geek." It was well done. It served its purpose, you know. It didn't harm anyone, but and you're not looking for the greatest match in the world, but it it definitely helped out, and, and it drew people were definitely interested in it. Like I said, if you watch the people in the background in Greensboro, they're definitely upset that poor Jimmy got cheated. So they're, <laughs> that's the way you have to look at it. Yeah. I mean, two things.
0: Number one, I, like I said, I was not a smart fan at this point, but I just got the sense that, you know, everyone assumed that Paul Jones was going to get his head shaved. And I, I just smelled it. I'm like, Jimmy Valiant is going to lose this match when it comes around. And for once, I was right. And I mean, number two, it was it was a great angle. The the you know Paul Jones cheats Jimmy Valiant. You know he could weasel out of it, and no, he just sits down in the chair and insists that his head gets shaved. The ultimate yep. babyface move.
1: And you can still hear and you can hear what Manny Fernandez in the background, which is ironic since he turned on a few months later when he said yeah. no, don't do it, no. And it's just like, again, the one thing people always when we talk about Crocker, listen to the crowd. Their reaction is what really emotionally got us into it was like yeah you didn't hear that i wouldn't say you didn't hear that really up north you heard that more in like the southern areas but that's what a lot of us loved about it was that just the the passion that the fans had for that for that era and particularly that moment when he's getting his head shaved where it's just like man this is that's the ultimate indignity <laughs> and him sitting there like gr- gritting his teeth and taking it and that's that's ultimately what a babyface has to do to get that over
0: yeah, Valiant gritting his teeth, like you just said, just added so much to it. Like you know, I know.
1: It's like I'm in pain, but I'm doing I'm, this. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm manning up. I, I signed a contract, man, man, man of my word. I'm shaving my head, so that's
0: uh, it. it that, the ultimate babyface move. You had posted on the Stick to Wrestling podcast Facebook group the final match, the match number seven in Magnum T A versus Nikita Koloff. We're talking about the. The atmosphere, the crowd, when Nikita Koloff got handed the United States Championship, I mean, the place just, I I, mean, I remember watching it on Worldwide Wrestling and just the place went silent. To recap, Nikita won the first three matches in the best of seven series. Magnum came back to tie it up. And you, once again, you had the fans thinking Magnum's got the momentum. He's going to win this. And Nikita steals it, and just the reaction was phenomenal.
1: The amazing thing about that match—if people didn't see the original matches—every single match in that series had a clean finish, but that one. The first one in Philadelphia, you remember, Magnum. Yep. Got lost clean with a sickle. Got him. Didn't use a chain. Got him with a sickle. Magnum wins three with the belly. to belly. You know, I remember the quick count in Greensboro doesn't matter. This was the only match that kind of had quarter screw job finished. Funny story about this: I met Ivan Koloff at one of these WrestleCon conventions back in prior to his death in 2000, it was 2010. And when I asked him about that night, and he said, that was the one night in my career, not Bruno, not nothing, where I thought, we might not make it out of here. Because if you look closely, when they get out of the ring, the police enveloped. And he says, As we were going up the aisle. We felt the, like the barricades pushing towards us. And he said he felt something in his ribs that he thought was a gun. He said, I had my head down the whole way going back there. And he said, when we got to the dressing room, he was like, look, don't." he was basically telling him, don't say squat. Get to the dressing room, do what you got to do, blah blah blah. They, they got in there, and they just said there were there was a lot of heavy breathing. Like, thank God we got back there. And the, and the cops were just looking at them. They were thinking that the cops are really going to do something to them because they cheated. You know, poor Magnum out of this title. But again, when you the funny thing is when you see the three count, you see Tommy Young stumble to the ropes and get the belt, and he just hands it to him, and you just see stuff flying into the ring, and then the crowd is just like, no, no. And Tony, what does Tony say? The nightmare came true. It was like. That was amazing to see that, that end like that. And that was also a great episode of um worldwide because they had what was it? They opened up with Midnight Rock and Roll, then they had the flare turn with um Baby Doll and then they had that match. I mean that might that was one of the great hours of television you'll ever see. But that match itself, I think everyone was in shock when not really shocked but but the way that it ended, it was so well done. Particularly with the way um Crusher coming down, you know, Magnum just laying flat in the ring. And you just hear gasps. That's all you hear. I mean, just yeah. Sobs and gasps. and it's just like that's that's when you know something's well executed. And that was well executed to the point where it was just I cannot believe this actually just went down. <laughs> and and the way David and Tony sold it at the table sitting there with this stunned, sad look on their face, it was just when people say it still feels real to me, that's what we talk about. You really bought that shit that damn, Magnum lost. <laughs> this is awful. What are we gonna do now? So it's it's really like you said, Dusty was had so many hot angles at that point he had writers cramp. It was it was scary what he was doing.
0: They were absolutely on fire. I remember watching worldwide wrestling that night. I, I'll I'll be the first to tell you I was twenty one. I was not always home by midnight on Saturday. And I I feel lucky that I was on this night because, like you said, it was an amazing hour of television. Now what's known as hot shotting because they got they crammed so much in, but I just loved that hour, and I came away feeling like the promotion was absolutely on fire. And ironically, next we talk about Baby Doll turning on Dusty and being paired with Ric Flair. This, I feel, was a huge mistake on Dusty Rhodes' part. I could have told you coming in that Ric Flair and Baby Doll putting them together was just not going to work. Baby Doll had just turned babyface in January. It's August, and they turn her back, and she just had a lot of mileage left in her in, in a babyface role. They didn't know what to do with her as a heel. It was almost like Dusty they was being impulsive. They, they turned her just to turn her.
1: Wasn't that based on because she had a relationship with Sam Houston? Because I'm trying to figure out if Dusty was mad about that. I'm like, so wait a minute. Her personal life, why are you letting your feelings towards her personal life interfere with the business? Secondly... Let's look at this from a, from a common sense standpoint. How did Baby Doll turn? Baby Doll's turned because Tully said, You ripped me off. And what does Tully do? He slaps her. Slap okay. Let her. me repeat this slapped her. And that to me, again, whoa. And then what happens? Look at that match. All of a sudden, Tully jumps in the ring, is pounding on Dusty. And what does Baby Doll do at the end? Posing with Rick and Tully. I'm like, hold up. Word of advice to anyone here who's ever seen, known someone to tell a woman, you put your hands on a woman, you're taking your life in the hands, number one. She ain't going to forget that. How she? How are you guys? Them hanging out with Tully? I'm to me, it's like D- Dusty. This makes no sense. He didn't like. Bel- he slapped her. And the other part that made no sense. She's now managing the Midnight Express after Star Kid Eighty Six. Are we gonna forget that Jim Cornette jabbed her in the stomach with a tennis rat? I'm. I, hello. We're gonna forget what yeah. Bobby and Dennis them did to her. I'm like, comp, you know, Dust. I understand you're mad, or maybe not mad, but just looking at. Um, I don't even know what to say. Mad about. She she has a personal life. She's with Sam Houston. That shouldn't affect you at all. Who the hell cares? It, it, it's not your business. And to turn her made no. She, Jim Cornette says she lost all. Her, she lost all her appeal. She was an attraction in the Great American Bash. Whenever I remember when she got in the ring with Cornette in Philadelphia, the crowd went ape. Oh my gosh, she's beating on this, 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 this. She was in it for five seconds and was probably the most over person in the whole match. And I just th- that was probably the one mistake Dusty made that whole year. Because to me it was just like, why are you doing this? It makes no sense. Doesn't add anything. It detracts from what you're trying to accomplish. It's like it's like benching one of your best players because they were late to a meeting. I was like, come on.
0: Yeah, I I think Dusty, you know, a couple of things. Number one, I think Dusty could never get enough sympathy. And if Baby Doll turns on Dusty and it costs him the NWA Championship, well, mission accomplished as far as Dusty's concerned. My understanding is that. When Dusty first brought Baby Doll in, he said, look, you know, do not get associated with any of the wrestlers. That always ends in drama. You don't have a boyfriend, just have someone outside of the business. And when she and Sam got together, he just didn't like it. Like, I mean, allegedly she told him, no, I won't do this. And here she is doing it at first behind his back. And then, you know, it became public. I don't know if that had anything to do with the angle. I think the fact that they had no place for her after you know, it was obvious the thing with her and Rick wasn't going to work out. They put her with the Warlord and that didn't work out and I mean, really Dusty was a great booker at this point. He wasn't the perfect booker and here's where he made a big mistake. I mean, if she and Sam were serious, Dusty should have just looked the other way in my opinion. Sam was coming together at this point and I don't think it was a, a coincidence that Sam was gone not long after this and it also wasn't a coincidence that Baby Doll was gone not long after Sam was let go.
1: True, He we went to Central States for a little bit, and then I think that, I know he was on k '86 for the Central States title, but after he he ended up going to the UWF and ended up doing nothing after that. And, and I almost kind of want to say Dusty kind of derailed his career. I don't want to go that far, but you know, losing Baby Doll, for as hot as she was from the minute she's joined up with Dusty, to that point. was foolish. I don't know what you could have done with her past that point. Maybe, I don't know what you could have done. They gave her the warlord first and then they gave her this other thing, but I mean unless you have another female to play off of and maybe with Precious, I don't know, maybe you could have done something with that. That doesn't always work either, but it's like you draft someone and you have nowhere to put them and you don't know what to do with them. And ultimately, you you just don't know how to utilize that piece of talent. This is not even to sound misogynistic in, in any way. Well, women, in my estimation, have a shelf life in terms of that role. Elizabeth, after a while, the helpless damsel got a little bit like, okay, can we, can we stop with that, please? You know, Missy Hyde, to me, she served her purpose for a while, but after a while, it's like, okay, now what? What's next? You've got to be able to constantly have things fresh and be able to make things different. And, you know, women playing off, off, off each other is fine, but if you go back to world class and things like that, like, how long did, did the sunshine precious tree last? It eventually, you know, died. Because it's like there's only so much you can do, so that's that's kind of the way you have to look at it. I think it's not it's not being misogynistic, it's just pointing out you have to constantly challenge yourself and do certain things to 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 uh, stimulate that that part of the business.
0: Well, it's it's not you being misogynistic; it's that you're you're catering to a bit of a misogynistic audience, and you you, you need to to deal with it on those terms. You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, if it were me. I would have waited a year to turn Baby Doll. I would have eventually turned her, but I would have had a plan for her, and I would have paired her up with another wrestler. I don't know who, but someone who had talent that could have used a Baby Doll to be elevated. Instead, they just hot shotted it, and you know, it was it was fun to watch at the time. Wow, Baby Doll turned on Dusty for no apparent reason.
1: That, but... That's the reason I couldn't get behind it because to me, it made no sense. The point is this: She's standing next to a man that just slapped her six months earlier, and then she's managing a team that jabbed her in the with a tennis racket. And her yep. humili- I, to me Again, one of the things you always see me put in the Facebook group: does this make sense? Oh, it doesn't. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying this to be a clown or saying this to be a jerk. I'm saying this today. It's got to make sense. If you, if I always use sports as the analogy. If you come to me, if you're a general manager, say, we're doing this. Does this make sense? If not, don't do it. <laughs> so this is the way you have to look at everything you do from a business standpoint. If it, does turning her at that point make sense. If it does to you, God bless. Cause I, to me, it just, at that point, I never saw it did more damage than good. You took someone away from Dusty. I mean, I guess maybe they had run the course with Dusty, but if you, if she's with Sam, have her manage Sam, you're giving Sam a boost. Maybe give him a, sure, a shot at the TV title or give him a tag team to partner to hang out with or something like that. I don't know. It just, you know, it didn't make sense to me what they did. And it's just ultimately you ended up hurting, doing more harm than good. Then, then you took a valuable piece and just said, "Well, will just toss her aside and find something for her to do. You don't just take someone that was in, that was involved with some of your hottest angles and then toss her away six months later. That to me makes no sense.
0: No, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, as soon as I saw baby doll and Ric Flair on TV, I was like, this is, this is not going to work. And I, once again, I was not like a smart fan or anything, but it just did not look right, and they got rid of it right away. Yeah. Off to the WWF. Paul Orndorff turns on Hulk Hogan, and they have a huge feud. To me, this looked like—the WWF, to me, in 1986 looked like it wasn't doing well. But I, again, I had no access to information. It was doing extremely well. Um, I went to the Boston Garden and saw a show, and it was less than full. It was like two-thirds of the way full. Then I went to the Worcester Centrum to see a show and it drew like maybe 2000 people and it got a lot of uh, the local rock station was pushing it. They were doing the Battle Royal where the wrestlers were in it, but also the women wrestlers were in it and the managers were in it. And it was a complete flop. Uh, The Orndorff turn looked like garbage to me. I mean, you could see six weeks earlier that Paul Orndorff is clearly turning. Uh, They had just done Orndorff versus Hogan a year, year and a half earlier, and yet it did great business. And I, I was really surprised when I learned that.
1: It was well done. I mean, it was funny to me because my, my friend always jokes. She says, Hogan, take the call. Just take the call. <laughs> it's like he won't talk to him at the gym. <laughs> but, I mean, it was funny to me how the Orndorff turned, but then the Roddy Piper turned. I thought WF was, to me, they were doing what kind of in spite of not having, you know, I wouldn't say not in spite of it, because I know Brandon Rice is going to hear this. go, you're always bashing Vince. I said, no, they were doing well with Savage because he was, Savage in my estimation really for the first six months, eight months was kind of carrying the company because he had great matches with Hogan. He was then doing, he did a program with Jake Roberts. He kind of did a couple matches with Steamboat, but Savage was kind of involved in a lot of stuff that made it good. And then the Bulldogs, the Bulldogs really excited the fans a lot with the Hart with the Foundation. And, you know, yeah, had Jake Roberts and Ricky Steamboat, but the Hogan Order thing really kind of revitalized, I think, uh, the belt at that point because they went around with Savage, and it was pretty obvious at that point Savage is not going to win because he was moving on something else. But the, the Orndorff turn worked. And obviously, anytime you do a betrayal, it works. And anytime you put Heenan, Heenan is such a catalyst in that. Bobby Heenan, God bless the dead. He's such a catalyst and so good with it that it worked. And, you know, him joining the Heenan family and everything else, it looked really good. And this kind of shocked because. When they did that, um, the Orndorff matches, they didn't put them in the garden at all. They put them in Nassau Coliseum by me. So I was like, "And anybody knows anything about the Tri-State area, the Nassau Coliseum is the hardest place in the world to get to, unless you have a car. Even if you have a car, it's impossible to get out there. And you took your hottest feud and put it in a place where it's not, you can't really get to, um, you know, by public transport. So the feud itself worked. It drew a huge number in Toronto for that big show, the big outdoor show, but I think the one thing that actually kind of worked—you actually know Orndorff might win this. I think we all remember the cage match and Saturday Night's main event a few months later, when you know both feet hit the floor. But Vince was never going to let anyone else be his champion. Maybe that's why—that's always been my issue with you know the WWF is like they just built Hogan up to the point where you couldn't potentially ever lose, and you know Orndorff was the one guy that maybe they could have done it, but maybe they could have done a switch. I don't know, but ultimately. To me, the, the more interesting that happened in the WF was when Piper turned. That, to me, was like out of nowhere. Then <laughs> No no one saw that coming. And then when it happened, it was like, uh-oh, now we're in for some interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, one thing I liked about the Hogan-Orndorff feud, it, it was Hogan's first national feud. I mean, they didn't go around the horn against Roddy Piper. They didn't shoot a national angle with Dr. D. David Schultz. This is the first time they shot a national angle with Hogan as champion, and we're two years in, which is pretty incredible. I thought it was an absolute riot when Paul Orndorff cupped his ear via Hulk Hogan. He wasn't (laughs) mocking Hulk Hogan. He was doing it for real, and he used Hulk Hogan's entrance music to come to the ring.
1: (laughs) That that was funny, because that's a very good point you made about a national angle, because you're right. He hadn't really had... I mean, the Roddy Piper thing was more or less trying to get the company built up, you know, with the Rock and Wrestling thing. But um, when Orndorff turned, and then, to me, the quality of matches were very good. Whereas that year, I think Hogan probably, he had good quality of matches with Savage, he had good quality of matches with Orndorf. Those are the only two real quality opponents he had the course of that year. And, I mean, we, the Bundy match at WrestleMania Two was, you know, nothing to write home about. But, you know, I think Orndorf and Savage brought out the best of him. I know Orndorf did. But um, what they did, they went around the horn quite a bit in the fall everywhere. And that was kind of something that you didn't really see. Even the Savage stuff only went around for like two or three months. This was like four or five months from like middle of summer to the end of the year. It was Horgan Orndorff, And then he went into somebody else. But that was interesting with the way they did it. And they gave him a shot on Saturday night's main event, which you didn't see with anybody else too. That meant that meant they were trying to give you the idea that maybe you know, maybe Orndorf could actually do this. It never came to pass, but Vince, you know, he was married to Hogan and he did what he needed to do to, you know, keep him at the top and ultimately it was fresh. And it led you to believe that maybe Hogan could actually lose, but it didn't really happen to me. That's always something that I, you got to keep that illusion up to where you can't make someone that invincible, but that was Vince's mantra. And that's the way he, he built his his company.
0: You, know, you you mentioned how great Bobby Heenan was and he was absolutely great. The secondary angle that they were running late summer into the fall was the machines. And the, the storyline was Andre, the giant, no showed a match on TV was supposed to be Andre. And I think, what's his name? Uh, I think it was was supposed to be Andre.
1: uh,
0: Right. And tear CD was subbed for him and Vince gets on. And he's like, Oh, Andre has been a little bit arrogant as of late. The first little hint that Andre would be turning, but Andre gets suspended and he comes back under a mask as the giant machine with his two friends from Japan, the super machine and the giant, uh,
1: What was the other one? Was it, was it Mega Machine or was it Super Machine, Giant Machine, or Super Machine Big Giant, Machine. Big Machine. That's what it was.
0: <laughs> there you go.
1: Big Machine.
0: Even I could tell that was Blackjack Mulligan because of the right. tattoo. I was
1: like, uh, my 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 friend <laughs> last year during pandemic when he was when he was watching them, he said, Did Black?" He he was watching the machines and he says to me, "Did Blackjack need to check that bad?" I said, "Probably," <laughs> you know, but I just said for him to have to do that. I, I just, I, I was like, Blackjack really had to get really sunk to that level to do that. But, um, he wrestling in main events. Still, to me, the machines actually headline math. That's what made me angry. The machines headline Masters regarding two months in a row, and Nassau Coliseum gets Hogan Orndorff. I'm just like, hello, we're getting this. But also, in case people were wondering, that was also when Andre was doing the, uh, the Princess Bride. He took a month off to do the Princess Bride in case people. Needed to know. Oh, that, <laughs> that explains the suspension, and then he comes explains, back. He comes back. He was. They. D- he did. If you actually watch the Andre the Giant documentary, you see the first the filming of it. It lists August eighty six because you see the you see the reel on the film. It says August eighty six when he's doing it. But then he came back in October. I think it was like September, October. That's when he did the wraparounds. But you know, it's still one of the. For those that don't know, yes, I'm a geek for the Princess Bride. I truly love it. <laughs> I love that film. It's one of my guilty pleasures. But the machine. I'll have to check it out. You've never seen the Princess Bride? All right, I've never come seen on, it. Man. All right, the Princess Bride is great. It's it's truly yes, it's a chick flick, but uh, it's a it's, it's a, I just like it because it's a, it's a it's a nice story. But you know, Vince always believed in doing things with masks more than anybody that I've ever I can ever recall. So I mean, it's the oldest thing in the book. Guy gets suspended, he comes back. Next thing you know, he's under a mask, and we're letting everybody know we're all in on the joke. I mean, also they had the Hulk machine at one point, and who, who teamed up with him, which was even sillier but they got over and it worked for a little bit but bobby heenan completely losing his mind about andre that's a good point that you brought up about andre turning because that yeah that was kind of the first idea that andre wasn't listening to people and he was no showing and stuff like that and i don't think anybody could have foreseen what was what was coming with it but it was it was well done but also another idea that sometimes you have to keep things fresh and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't in case of the machines they got over and you know the kids love them. If you watched a few weeks ago on the A and E network during one of those Lost Treasures, the three machine masks were, were one of the things they found. Oh in wow! The, uh, in the WWF vaults. If you watch um, on A and E, they had Lost tre- when they were doing all the biographies. Everyone they had a thing called Lost Treasures, and they had some things they found. One of the things they found were the original machine costumes, and it was they were Andre's was huge, but they had the machine mask with Andre. It looked like you could you could have fit at least two footballs in it because it was it was that big of a mask. So that's I believe uh, it. If you ever get a chance on a do if you have a uh, and on demand, see if you can look that up. It's some very interesting stuff was in within the, within the WWF vaults or WWE vaults nowadays. Yeah, you had mentioned that they had the Hulk machine
0: at Madison Square Garden. We got the Piper machine up here in Boston. And you got some, that? Oh. We, we got the Piper machine. And some other cities got the steel machine. So there you go. I mean, Ugh. I thought it was absolutely silly. At the time, I didn't like it but Heenan was phenomenal. He just sees Andre in this costume and he loses it. And he keeps yep. saying, they're
1: not from Japan. <laughs> like He's it, like, Bobby could make anything work. And that, yes. that's what a great manager does. Like it's whether it's Jimmy Hart, Cornette, the great ones managed to get the silly stuff over. And Bobby Heenan did in that regard, like the weasel costumes and things like that. But Bobby could make anything serious. I mean, when he cuts, a great, he cuts a great promo on it, and he's talking about, you know, in terms of Orndorf, like, you've always been jealous of this man, blah, blah, blah. Again, Heenan is so un... When you always talk about the great managers of all time. Heenan is somewhat going to, people say, always have him as number one. I say he's still underrated because he could take these silliest things and make them, you know, believable. And that's what the great ones can do. And Bobby was the best at it. No matter what it was, you know, he, he could make anything, you know, good and great. His commentary was excellent. I mean, it was almost like going back to the to the Shawn Michaels thing when he turns on. That what makes that hysterical is Bobby Heenan's commentary. Like, look, he jumped through the window. <laughs> you know, when <laughs> Shawn Michaels when Shawn Michaels supposed to he's he's so afraid of Shawn Michaels, he ran out the window. I was <laughs> just like, It's you that it's like you hear a girl like, Would you stop? But I mean that that's what Bobby did. He was just great at whatever role he was asked, he was great at and that's why I think so many so many of us love him so much. I mean, Brad Breitzman
0: was on our show maybe over a year ago and he pointed out that maybe the greatest feud of all time was Bobby Heenan versus Hulk Hogan. I mean, they took it from the AWA,
1: they brought it to the WWF and it was and, brought it to, and then think about this when Hogan turned, yep. When he joined the third man and when Bobby Heenan said, I told you about this guy, I was right about yep, this guy was I beautiful. was like I thought about that, I said, that's what I mean by commentary or something being be adding something to it when Bobby said, like, holy cow, he's right, it's like, I warned you about this guy a long time ago, didn't I? <laughs> it's just like, well, Bobby was kind of onto something there, but he, he was he was 100% right when he said it, but he always, he could always make something great, and, you know, that's an interesting point about being the greatest feud of all time. I mean, that, yeah, that covers three territories in three different decades. Two different decades, anyway, that's a lot, so shout out to Raph for pointing that out.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I had never really thought of it in those terms before, but I mean, Hulk Hogan, you know, Bobby Heenan really had a big role in the whole Hulk Hogan story. Uh, Now, you had mentioned you wanted to talk about the WWF tag team scene in 1986. They definitely had a lot of great teams and they were doing interesting stuff like they were having heel versus heel matches. I mean, I remember seeing the Hart Foundation against Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov in Boston and just being like, wow, you know, this is different and different in, in this case is good.
1: They did that with you know when Savage went up against Jake Roberts, you know, and it was like it showed that. I always just think I didn't like heel versus heel, but then I changed my mind. I thought it gave you something different to look at. It's like appreciate excellence. It was almost a year later, if you remember, when the Heart Foundation won the belts. They used to have these one night tag tournaments in cities, and it was heel versus heel. And sometimes the hearts. A lot of times, I remember in the Meadowlands, they had a tournament. The Heart Foundation ended up wrestling Dino Bravo and Greg Valentine. And the funny thing is. People were cheering for Bravo and Valentine. That's how much they hated the hearts. So <laughs> it was like, it's weird, but they really, it was really interesting what they did in 86. You had Bulldogs Heart Foundation. You had the Killer Bees, who I always thought should have gotten, a, you know, kind of a run with the, uh, I always thought they should have gotten, you know, a title shot or t- held the belts because they were good. It's a shame people thought of them as a gimmick team, but, they were good, but, but Brian Blair and Brunzel were really good. You know, Sheik and Volkoff were, were interesting. A lot of other teams that came in at the time, you had um, the Moondogs. Which were, who, who held their spot down. But, you know, Hearts and Bulldogs were the best that you might see in the ring. That wasn't involving the Midnight Express. So, they did a great series that summer in, in New York. They wrestled Massacre run twice. They stole the show and tore the house down both times. And that's when I really thought that, you know, okay, the Heart Foundation, or the Bulldogs were or or other than the Midnight Express might have been the best in the ring team in the business at that time. Because they that was before, you know, they, the physical problems took overtook Dynamite and, you know, David Boy got a little bit banged up as well, but they were really doing good stuff in '86, in and that's kind of a shame that Vince, he sort of like neglected his tag team division really. After he could have done a lot more with it, I thought. But after that, he's kind of just you know, you know, he gave it to the Heart Foundation, but he never brought in a lot of other teams that could have challenged people or done good, interesting things that, in the organization.
0: No, I, I agree with you. I would have liked to have seen him. Vince do more and may, maybe bring in a tag team from the NWA to challenge the Hart Foundation, but that never happened. Another big thing that happened in the WWF in 1986, you'd mentioned it previously, Roddy Piper returns. Roddy Piper had one match after WrestleMania. It was at Foxborough, but he basically was taking time off after this and came back late summer. And the Piper's pit had been replaced by Adrian Adonis's flower shop and Roddy Piper returns, and he wants his spot back. I mean, I felt like the WWF fans were clamoring for a Piper turn. Piper as a heel had gotten, I don't know, I think he had gotten stale by WrestleMania two, and it was right. time for a new character, and we finally got what we wanted, Roddy Piper as a babyface. It felt like they never really wanted it to take off, because they didn't really have an opponent for Piper. I think Piper versus Adonis, might have been OK, but Adonis is he didn't get over as much as he the kind of push he got sort of dictated. And instead, you've got Roddy Piper feuding with Bob Orton Jr., who was never pushed as a top guy against mm-hmm. Morocco, who was way past his prime at this point. It right. felt like they never wanted Piper to get over as a number one, as a threat to Hogan. And as I was preparing for the show yesterday, it dawned on me it's like maybe they knew what they were doing because Piper retired just a few months later.
1: I think it was funny when Roddy turned, I mean, I still remember us coming into school the next day. you see what Roddy did when he destroyed the flower shop? And it was like, to me, Roddy was almost like he had become almost bigger. When you think about wrestlers that became actors, Roddy had a lot of great roles. I mean, they live and other things like that. Roddy to me was almost like, it was too much of a personality to really, you know, just be a traditional heel or a traditional face. When they turned them, I mean, I remember they teamed with Hogan once. I think they might have done did it. Did that happen in Boston or was it Philadelphia? I remember it was one or two major cities they did it in. Uh, New York. Fans, the, yeah, I know it was in New York. I think there was another major city was done. I can't recall what it was. They, the they did
0: six-mans with Hogan Piper and someone right? else.
1: It was Hogan and Piper and Ste- It was like Hogan Piper, Steamboat, or Hogan Piper, or somebody else. Or We got um, Billy Jack Haynes. Okay, uh, when he showed up. But yeah. Piper was such a personality. It was like, look, you can't, he's like, you can't contain him in a box. He's not a heel, not a face. He's just, he just is. And he's going to have his following no matter what. Cause you remember after WrestleMania one, he really started concentrating more on the Piper's pit segments. It wasn't like he was doing things in the ring, you know, with a lot of people. That's when they finally figured he he, should, he could do movies. Cause he did the Goonies video. and So that's when they got the idea, you know, this guy could really act, you know, we need to put him in certain things. And I can't remember a couple, He did one movie, what was it, with Dirk Benedict, Body Slam, and then that's when he did They Live and everything else a year later. But Roddy, when he turned, it was something that was needed to be done. Maybe he got bored, I don't know. Because the reality of it is, unless you're going to give him a main spot with something like, again, I don't think Hogan's sucking a lot of the oxygen out, but Hogan, Savage, Steamboat are are your, your, your main guys at this point. Piper didn't really have a slot at that point to really do anything other than just a foil, or just, you know, maybe he could have been a manager, I don't know. I don't think Roddy was ready to do that yet, but once you came up with the retirement gimmick of him going out at WrestleMania 3, that kind of worked. The turn worked, it was, it, the fans wanted to like him. It was almost like Flair, in that sense, that the fans want to like Flair. They just haven't been given the reason to do it yet. So, they gave him a reason, they flocked to him like, beast of honey, and it really got over good and fast, and it made a memorable, when he destroyed the flowers, so I can still hear him saying, the, the, the war has just begun. I mean, him limping out there and destroying everything on one leg with a baseball bat. And that's that's still in my head of the, the war has just begun. And, and, and when he's looking in the camera saying it. So I'm just like this is this is gonna be interesting. So it yeah, and, it, it really was
0: and Adonis goes out and gets fired and then the, that kinda kills the feud and, and Piper was over right. anyway and I kinda picked up on the formula that, okay, he's in Portland, he's the badass heel for a long time, and then he's, he's the baby face that everyone loves. And they did the same thing in Georgia, they did the same thing at Mid-Atlantic, and I kind of knew they were going to do the same thing in the WWF. And mm. it worked. There were people out there thinking, okay, Piper's going to be bigger than Hogan. That's how over they thought Piper was going to be. It just didn't come to those heights, but it worked. And unfortunately, Roddy, you know, good for him, he got a, a movie role And you'd way rather be in movies than wrestling. But, you know, it was kind of sad that Rod, to me at least, that we didn't get to see Roddy long-term as a babyface, at least until he came back at the end of 1989.
1: When he came back, it was great what he did with Rick Rude. I mean, he was—Roddy was phenomenal in the antagonist role, no matter what he did. But when he became a face, he really became—he just became almost, I would say, more unhinged, shall I say. They They allowed him to do more. To antagonize like Heenan and Rude, especially when he when he moons Rick Rude at SummerSlam, which is probably one of the funniest things I've ever seen. You know, when Rude is trying to gr- doing his bump and grind act and he moons him, <laughs> and like you know, he, and, and Jesse Ventura goes bananas because uh, he he said he cost Rick Rude the title, but it was, it was Roddy was great. God bless him. Uh, he, he he's been gone so long, but I gone and never forgotten and always one of my personal favorites because of just his promos and his, and the way he 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 could get himself across without having to be You know, some guys nowadays need to watch what he does because you you need to get yourself across without being vulgar or stupid or or overly bombastic, I would say.
0: Yeah, Piper, when he died, I mean, I I had no idea that that was coming. You know, I mean, when Bobby Heenan passed away, we all knew it was coming. Piper, for me, it came out of the blue and it was just devastating. But anyway, okay, that concludes part one of my discussion with Christian Body about the summer of 1986, the summer where the we both think is the best one in wrestling history. Great conversation. We'll hear part two of it next week. I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and we'll see you next week.
1: This concludes our podcast day.